Welcome back to Attorney Time, the legal podcast for the business-minded, hosted by attorneys at the law firm Holly Troxel. Attorney Time brings legal expertise to you. In each episode, Holly Troxel's team of experienced attorneys will cover a broad range of legal topics, from intellectual property and patents to tips for startup companies. In this episode of Attorney Time, we are joined by Holly Troxel attorney Phil McKay. Phil McKay is the chair of Holly Troxel's Patent Intellectual Property and Internet Groups. Phil has prepared and prosecuted hundreds of domestic and foreign patent applications. With over 20 years of experience, he helps clients achieve strategic business objectives, authors non-infringement and validity opinions, and provides strategic technology licensing and portfolio management counseling to numerous companies throughout the technology sector. Phil has also taken part in technology licensing negotiations involving companies ranging from small startups to some of the most well-known corporations in the world. In addition, as corporate patent counsel, he has helped establish the patent program policies and procedures used by a Fortune 100 corporation to create one of the largest patent portfolios in the Silicon Valley. He is licensed to practice law in California, Washington, the District of Columbia, and before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Hi, welcome back to Attorney Time. My name's Phil McKay. I'm the patent chair at Holly Troxel here in Boise, Idaho. Uh, today's presentation is going to uh, be directed to what, when, and where to patent. Uh, this is an introductory uh, podcast. Uh, before I go into that, because there are attorneys involved, uh, we're going to uh, do a disclaimer. Uh, this presentation is meant for general information purposes only and does not resent, represent any form of legal advice. The presentation is intended for individual inventors and companies that are new to the patenting process and desire an introduction to patent law concepts. Therefore, the discussion herein is a simplified high-level discussion and is not any form of legal or academic analysis or advice. Uh, patent law issues are actually very fact and circumstance dependent. Therefore, the listener should seek out competent patent counsel for any specific patent questions or issues the listener may have. Okay, now that we've got that out of the way, uh, again, today we're going to talk about what, when, and where to patent. And just as a reminder, in a, uh, in a uh, previous pro- podcast, we talked about the types of patents, but I'm going to o- give a quick overview of that because uh, it's pertinent to this discussion as well. Um, plant patents is the first category of patents. These are issued for asexually reproduced pl- plant species only, and only asexually reproduced. Uh, We have design patents. These are issued for basically aesthetics or appearance or something that that is of a unique design that is not functional in its nature. And again, for more information, please go look up the podcast directed to design patents. And then we have utility patents, which is what most people think of when they're talking about patents. These are issued for functional uh, uh, inventions. Uh, A quick note there, provisional well, they say provisional patents. They're not actually patents. They're provisional applications. They're never um, actually examined, and they never issue as patents. Again, there's a podcast directed to provisional applications where you can get more detail about that. But basically, the overview there is we have plant patents, we have design patents, and we have utility patents, uh, uh, protection available, I should say, uh, for whatever you decide you need to patent. So what can be patented? Well, the classic... Uh, patent law saying from a from case law is anything under the sun made by man but not necessarily everything done by man and this was at one time read as a very broad description of what could be patented more recently particularly in the software space um, it's been arguably more limited 
Um, there have always been the exceptions to patentability of natural phenomenon, things that occur in nature and you just happen to discover them. The phenomenon itself is not patentable. The results of the phenomenon could be, but not the phenomenon itself. Similarly, laws of nature like F equals MA or any relationship of nature is not patentable in and of itself, but the application of that law of nature could be. And the one that comes up in software all the time these days is abstract ideas. Um, I will be giving several presentations directed to software patents. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that today because it would easily eat up this entire presentation and about three others. But the idea is that simply taking an abstract concept like hedging, spreading out your investments over different uh, uh, companies, for instance, and then using a computer to do that uh, would generally be considered an abstract idea and probably found not patentable subject matter. So here's the most important thing about what can be patented 80% uh, of the time. New collections of existing elements or devices. So I, I hear this a lot. People come to me and say, hey, all I'm doing is taking components that are already known and out there, and I'm combining them either in a different way or I'm combining them uh, to do a different thing, or both. That is absolutely patentable space. And so the fact that you're not actually inventing a brand new light bulb uh, is not going to prevent you from getting a patent. What it is is, uh, I would say, the vast majority, up to 99% of patents, are really just new uses of existing components. Uh, there's 10 million issued patents out there today. Very few of them rise to the level of the light bulb. And in fact, the light bulb itself uh, was an improvement on, uh, the filament at least, was an improvement on uh, existing technology. So even that is not the best example. So basically, don't restrict yourself in considering something for patentability just because the components are known or, or like I said, pieces of it are known out there uh, or and it's a recombination. So the next question becomes, you know, particularly if you're not willing or want to spend uh, a bunch of money uh, what really should I focus on when I'm patenting? And, you know, my company's just starting up or my company's just moving into the patent space. I don't want to patent, you know, everything possible necessarily. Uh, where should I limit that? Where should I put those limits? Where should I focus my patenting? And uh, I'm going to break this up into two different environments because I've seen these two environments, but really it's the same idea. One of them is when you're basically looking to get a patent and then turn around and license that patent to somebody. Um, the other is that you're actually going to make this. And like I said, it's really uh, two sides of the same coin. But let's start with if you're looking to get a patent and you want to turn around and license the rights that you obtain, what you really got to ask yourself is, what is at the heart of my idea? What, what is it that made me even think about talking to a patent attorney in the first place? Um, another way of putting that is, what if, if it was discovered or done by others would make my idea either redundant or of significantly less value um, or, or in some cases worthless. Um, so those are the first questions. Try to get to that core idea. The, the idea might be applied in a lot of different fields in a lot of different ways, but what is the core innovation, if you will? Um, the other thing you should ask yourself is, okay, if you're thinking about licensing this down the road, who are my licensees, potential licensees, at least who do I think they are? What do they make? And how does my invention make it better? And you can kind of craft the patent application along that line of focus as well. Um, again, what are the core advantages of my idea? These are the things you definitely want to get patents on, or at least include in the patent. And then once you've identified that, then you're, you should work with your patent attorney or yourself 
and then try to broaden out the idea. So if, if you basically determine that your invention, the core of your invention is a blue widget that does X, um, that's good, and you certainly want to patent that, but now you want to ask yourself, are there other colors of widget that I want to try and capture so somebody can't get around me by patenting a red widget? And to do X, uh, is this also, could it be used to do uh, some other thing Y? Uh, also want to include that and broaden out your invention so that you capture as large uh, a set of possible ways of doing and using your invention as possible, limited though by what's already out there. You don't want to cast out a net so large that the examiner is going to come back and say, well, that's just too broad, might describe it as an abstract idea, or it's the examiner is going to find other people doing things that are similar because your net's capturing so much of the uh, of the market or so much of the idea. The, like I said, the flip side to this is that now you, let's assume you're a company that's actually going to make this. Um, not that different. Uh, the question sort of becomes, what do I do that would be devastating to me if the competition was able to copy it? Or worse, if the competition was able to get a patent on it and try to stop me from doing it? So again, this is just at the core of the innovation uh, and at the core of your invention, but it's sort of a, it's a little bit of a different angle of looking at it, I suppose. Um, so again, the question is, what am I doing that my potential competitors, partners, and licensees would want to make sure was covered, or what would want to uh, uh, would 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 view as uh, uh, advantageous? Um, and then the next question that sort of applies to the business is, why am I starting this business? Why do, or, or why am I moving into this market if you're not starting the business? And why do I feel I am better than the competition? Again, this tells you what's at the heart of your innovation. And so you want to think seriously about patenting that piece or that particular innovation. And then again, once you've identified it, you should be working with your patent attorney or whomever, yourself perhaps, uh, and making sure you broaden it out reasonably to cover as many different ways of doing it and using your invention for as many different purposes as you believe uh, are novel. The next question becomes why patent? And, and uh, first of all, as we've discussed in previous presentations, uh, this gives you 20 years from the date of filing to stop others from making, using, or selling. I mean, this is essentially a mon monopoly. Why do you want this monopoly? First and foremost, by far, at least at the beginning, of a business or a, a patenting process, people are thinking defensive purposes. I don't want somebody to see my invention and come along and copy it and then undercut my market. The typical small inventor is thinking, wow, okay, I've got this patent, I've got this great idea, uh, but I've got you know, uh, uh, limited resources. I throw it out on the market and some huge company or some foreign company sees it. They have better manufacturing capability and perhaps even better name recognition, and they just push me right out of the market by copying my idea. Well, a patent as a monopoly gives you the ability to stop them from making, using, or selling the invention. So defensive is usually where people's mindset starts. But then things, if the company does well, you tend to move into this offensive purposes, and there's some nasty entities out there called trolls that basically build a business model on this. You get the patent, and then uh, you've defended what you're doing, and now you want to go out and try to stop people from making it and extract licensing fees from them. Say, okay, I have a patent to this. Uh, you're going to have to pay me in order to use this technology. Um, that is a very effective tool, first of all, for generating revenue. But in addition, if you want to keep your competitors in check 
and you charge a high enough licensing fee, you can actually beat them out of the gate on the price point. In other words, if you have to pay me $10 per unit to use my patent to make the device, well, then I have almost immediately, uh, de facto, a $10 cost uh, uh, advantage over you for each unit. That would be $10 for each unit. Um, the other thing, that, the other reason to, to get patents is it's a tangible return on research and development where you get some property in addition to a product out of R&D. And sometimes the R&D uh, doesn't result in something that you market, but if you get a patent on it and then don't pursue it, you still have those patent rights and they still can be used offensively to stop people from making or using uh, the invention. And then the last item that, that comes up uh, quite often is that anybody that's con contemplating investing in your company, uh, or even in, for accounting purposes, this is an asset. And it shows that you've not only taken steps to protect your business model, but you've also, in some cases, if you've got the patent, you've got the United States government agreeing that this is innovative, and it actually is a property right. Therefore, the broader category of intellectual property under which patents fall. Um, the other, there's other reasons for getting patents. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these, but you know, in this very litigious environment that we've been in for 20 years now, uh, the more patents you have, uh, the less likely another company is going to want to sue you because the greater the possibility that you can countersue and, and, and say, well, they may come to you and say, you infringe our patent. You might come back and say, well, maybe, maybe not, but we think you infringe our patents. And all of a sudden, the attorneys are involved, and this is getting very expensive. It makes you an expensive target. Um, in addition, if uh, somebody asserts a patent against you and you have a patent to what you're doing, and they're in a similar space, you also have a starting advantage by saying, well, you say I infringe, but the United States government says, no, what I did was new and novel. Um, and uh, that's a good starting point. It's not the end of the story, but it's a good place to start. Um, when you have some patents, uh, you're more likely to get a good cross-licensing agreement or a better deal. This even applies to trolls. There'll be a presentation on trolls later but it uh, certainly applies when it's a competitor who's actually making the same thing. Nobody wants to go and make a bunch of lawyers rich, except maybe me, uh, but nobody really wants to make a bunch of lawyers rich, so they're gonna sit down in, on a, a rational business model, cross-license, and put an end to it so everybody can go about their business, literally. Um, and then the other thing that's uh, kind of neat about patents that I'm gonna hit while I'm here is that when it is found that somebody infringes a patent, the uh, one, one measure that's used to determine how much they owe is a reasonable royalty, which is actually a percentage of the revenue based on not only just the percentage of the revenue, but the percentage of that revenue that's probably due to the patent. Point being here, the bigger your competitor that you're asserting the patent against, you know, usually the larger the revenue and um, in a sense the larger potential payoff. This puts you in a strong bargaining position even if you're a smaller company. So those are the reasons to patent. Now, you know, we come down to, well, that's all fine and dandy, but I don't have a million dollar budget to go out and get patents. How can we keep these patents costs under control? Well, the first answer to that is what we just discussed. Focus in on those real core or crown jewel uh, innovations for the patents. And then when you actually go down the patent process, one thing that I've seen that really is not true at all 
is uh, somebody will come in and they've got sort of, this, let's say it's a software system. They'll come in and try to get this jumbo patent directed to the entire system. All these little pieces and components and functionality all in one patent on the idea, based on the idea that one patent costs less than five. But a patent of that size, you're paying the attorneys by the hour. And so it's going to cost you just as much, if not more, to file that jumbo patent than it would be to file the five separate ones. Uh, so really, in terms of cost, you're not saving anything going in. Uh, in addition, the amount of time um, that your engineers and your inventors are going to have to uh, spend with a patent attorney on that one application is going to be ridiculous. And everybody's going to get lost uh, because you're just trying to grab too much, too many ideas in one single place. There's another reason that those jumbo patents are not preferred. Uh, if you ended up in litigation, these large patents with all these various ideas are going to be much harder to explain to the judges and juries that are going to have to make a decision. Um, and then there's also the putting your eggs all in one basket problem, is that if it really is just one patent application, but it could have been five, well, that one application goes to one examiner, and it goes through the process as a single patent application. And if it dies in the process, that's it. That was your patent. I mean, there's ways to you can continue the filings, and, and there's fixes to that, but they're not ideal. Better to put out five, uh, and then you know your, your odds are you're going to get more than one examiner, and it's going to get more than one uh, opportunities to get patented. And uh, so you're likely to get, you're more likely to get a patent in the first place out of those five. And if you do get all five allowed, well, now you've got five patents instead of one. Um, so there's some thoughts there. Uh, while we're here and we're talking about we're still in when to patent, I'm going to refer you back to a, a podcast that we've already recorded that is uh, directed to how not to use, lose your patent rights uh, accidentally, and this re involves what they call bar dates. And I'm going to hit this very briefly, but it's something that you should definitely go listen to uh, in detail in that other presentation. In the United States, you've got a year grace period after you do any of the three things. You publicly disclose the patent, you offer to sell it, uh, or you publicly use it. Um, you better keep track of when you do that and make sure that you have uh, a patent on file within a year of that if you want to protect your rights. Uh, that's in the U.S. That's the good news. Virtually everywhere else in the world, well, uh, at least in Asia and Europe, uh, at least two of those, public disclosure and public use, you can lose your patent rights immediately. So again, uh, as soon as you have a concept of your invention and you're going to start showing it to the world, you really need to think about getting a patent before you do that uh, if you're going to go global. And you really probably don't know going in if you're going to go global. So better safe than sorry. And within a year, you want to get a patent on file if you're thinking about the US. The other thing is we are a first to file system. It used to be a long time ago now. But when I was practicing, uh, started, uh, it was first to invent. They would actually say, hey, keep notebooks. Send out a poor man's patent that I'll talk about here in a bit uh, so you can show you were the first to invent. Not really that relevant anymore. It's first to file. So you want to get that filing date of the patent as quickly as you can. Uh, I'm going to quickly hit, again, we'll have a whole podcast directed to provisional patent applications, uh, but I'm going to quickly hit that. Uh, provisional patent applications, again, are not a patent. It's an application. It's never examined. Uh, it's really only a place marker saying that, yeah, this is my invention and I want to get this filing date. 
Um, but you only get the filing date for what is described in enough detail for somebody in the art to understand the invention. So you can't simply submit a paper that says, yeah, uh, I claim a perpetual motion machine. If you're going to do that and you really want that filing date, you're going to have to explain how that perpetual motion machine works in enough detail that somebody in the art would understand it. Um, and th there's the key, because if some people use these provisionals and think, oh, I'll just throw together my lab notebooks or whatever they're working with and call that a provisional. And in a pinch, that might be of some value, but if it's not enabled, you won't get that filing date, and, and it, it won't help you at all. Uh, the other thing about a provisional you have to keep in mind is that once you file it, uh, it starts a clock, and so you have to get that full-blown utility, the real patent application, if you will, on file within a year if you want that filing date. Um, the time to use provisionals uh, is one of the most important one or the one that comes up and is most legitimate in my mind is when you're up against a bar date. You find out on day 361 that 300, uh, that, that uh, uh, this invention was disclosed by one of your marketing people and you got four days to get a patent on file. Uh, if, it's, if it has any decent amount of complexity, that's not really a reasonable amount of time to get a decent patent application together. So file a provisional. In this case, you might throw together those notebooks, presentations, PowerPoints, and just file them just to keep uh, do as good a job as you can uh, from, uh, to keep from losing your rights. Uh, that's probably one of the most important reasons to put in a provisional. Uh, another one would be is if, you know, you can explain the invention in enough detail to enable somebody, but you're, you know going in that this idea might evolve. Um, and you also might know that the competition is on the move in this space. Then you might want to file that provisional to get that initial marker in the sand and then as the over the year between the provisional and the utility work out some of those bugs and file the utility in a more um, I guess a preferred embodiment or uh, a more tried and tested embodiment. Um, and then the other one like I said is people think in terms of cost and because there's you know no claims required in a provisional application and um, you can be a little lighter on the details although again you have to enable it um, you could save cost on provisionals at least it would seem that way going in so for instance if the utility application might cost ten thousand dollars to write um, you might get a provisional filed for five or six thousand and it sounds like you're saving five or four, uh, four to five thousand dollars however remember that within a year you're gonna have to file that utility application and so now you've thrown four or five thousand dollars potentially on top of that $10,000 filing and you've actually increased your overall costs. Now if the provisional was done well to start with a lot of it will be brought into the utility so it probably won't be uh, a full increase but I can't think of a case where f paying for a provisional and then filing a utility you didn't actually pay more for the provisional utility combination than you would have paid for the utility alone. That also includes the fact that you're paying two filing fees. Um, so that's sort of an overview of, of, uh, of that piece. And this, all, this was intended to be an overview. I wanted to talk on the way out about alternatives to protection. Uh, if you can't afford or don't feel you're ready for the patent protection, uh, keep in mind there's always trade secret. And trade secret can be pretty powerful if you can make sure that your competition and the people working for you will not be able to figure out your invention based on the product you're selling. In other words, if you can keep uh, the uh, uh, 
for instance, the formula for Coca-Cola secret, uh, and you can keep your employees from disclosing it, uh, then, then if it was patentable, you wouldn't necessarily want to patent it because trade secret lasts forever. Uh, but the downside to trade secret is you have to take steps to keep it secret, and then if the secret's blown, somebody steals it, somebody puts it out in the public, a disgruntled employee, uh, it's no longer secret. So it frankly is no longer uh, uh, eligible for trade secret protection, regardless of the fact that you didn't do anything wrong. Once it's not a secret, it's not eligible for trade secret. Um, so that's a danger with trade secret. And you know the other fact is that a lot of products, when they're out there, it's going to be pretty evident how it was created or where the in inventive concept lies. And so just by putting it out there, um, you don't get the trade secret status. Um, copyright, some software protection is available with copyright with limits. Biggest limit to copyright is it truly has to be a copy. Um, so if somebody independently creates what you're doing, uh, in the terms of software for instance, and um, you can't prove that they copied it from you, uh, you're not eligible for copyright protection. So that's very limiting. Uh, trademark, it has some overlap with design patents that I discussed it in, in another uh, podcast. Um, the, the real downside to trademark is you have to use it, and there's limits to that protection. The other alternative to patent protection, which is always out there, is you could take the money that you would spend on patents and put that into marketing and just rely on the fact that if you're the first one in the market and you can get name recognition before your competition can tool up and get that product out there, you may establish a market share that's so strong that by the time competition comes in and starts copying you, you're basically too established in the field for them to really mess with your market share. That's hard to pull off, but it is an option out there to think about. And then the last thing I wanted to say uh, with respect to this uh, uh, first to file is don't rely on a poor man's patent. I still hear this out there, and it's been quite a while since the law changed. Um, people used to write down their invention in some detail take lab MOOCs, whatever, it's often what it would be uh, in a provisional application, and they would put it in uh, an envelope, send it to themselves, get the postmark, make sure it's sealed, don't open it, and set that aside and say, if it ever comes up, I can show based on this document and this postmark that I invented it on this date. And that had some use in a first-to-invent system, but as I noted, we are no longer a first-to-invent system. It's first-to-file. So that poor man's patent mechanism really doesn't work very well at all. Um, okay, so uh, pre-issuance, disclosure, and marketing. Um, this is something I also want to uh, 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 talk about. So we file a patent application, and you say, oh, I've got the filing date, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about this in another podcast. But we've got the filing date, so now I can go out and offer to sell it, I can talk about it, I can put it out there in the public. And that's true. You won't affect your patent rights with respect to what's in the patent application. But there's something you need to know, is that patent application, unless you tell the United States Patent and Trademark Office that they can publish this, and the reason you would do that is if you're going to foreign file, another presentation. But unless you tell them they can publish it, that patent application is actually secret. And so you have not destroyed your trade secret rights by filing the patent application as long as you don't let it publish. But if you rely on the fact you've got the patent application, you go out and talk about it everywhere, well, now your trade secret rights will be affected. So just bear in mind that unless you tell the patent office they can publish it, 
Your patent application is still, still trade secret until you decide otherwise. Um, and then I think we're pretty much close to the end on this. The, uh, uh, with regards to what to patent, um, protecting uh, evolving concepts is also something you want to keep in mind. Once you file a patent application, utility or provisional, and we talked a little bit in the provisional could be used to cover this instance, the patent subject matter may evolve. And you, all, you want to make sure, now again, we're going to write that patent application so it's nice and broad and covers as many different ways of doing your invention and as many different uses of your invention as we can think of. And so hopefully we've got these improvements covered, but sometimes we might not. So once you kind of shift something in the initial invention, you just want to look at it and say, okay, is this covered by the previous patent? And if it's not, how important is it and how new is it? And you might want to do uh, basically a follow-up patent application. These are referred to technically as continuations in part. And what it is is you filed a patent application to a green widget. Now you realize that a red widget is also a possibility. Um, in that very simple example, you might want to file a continuation in part directed to the red widget, assuming that the original filing didn't cover a red widget, widget which we hope it would have. CIPs, because they're not being done from scratch, are typically less expensive than the initial filing. So it's in terms of cost, it's not a bad mechanism. And the other thing that's nice about a CIP is for the new matter, um, uh, well, for the old matter, the, the old information that you're drawing basically from the previous application, it gets the original filing date. The new stuff gets a new filing date. But the CIP, if it issues, issues as its own patent and it also issues with its own filing date so it can actually extend the life of at least a version of the patented concept. There can't be too much overlap, but that's another discussion. But it is one way of keeping, as the invention, invention involve, evolves, you can keep patenting those steps in that evolution and, and maintain your rights. In other words, if, the, if new related ideas come forward or new versions come forward, just take a look at it and consider applications on these as well, knowing that if it's a CIP, it's going to be less expensive, likely, than the original filing. Okay, now we're moving uh, very quickly to where to patent, and this is uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, in, and there will be a discussion about foreign filing, which is what we're talking about here, is whether we should, you should file, uh, where you should file, and when, in this case, uh, of foreign filing. Uh, with regards to anything that's made in the U.S. or if your market's in the U.S., there's no question that the U.S. still has the best bang for your buck and that's where you could file, where you should file, I should say. Um, so you file in the United States, it turns out you have a year to file in foreign jurisdictions and we can probably extend that uh, using the PCT, uh, at least in terms of incurring significant cost. But let's go back to the U.S. If your market is the U.S. market, a U.S. patent's going to do it. If you're concerned about the Chinese often come up in this context, um, taking your idea, manufacturing in China, and bringing it into the United States, your U.S. patent will protect you from that. You can stop them from bringing it into the United States based on your patent. The real instance where you want to look at considering foreign filing, which is, by the way, typically much more expensive than U.S. filings, the foreign filing comes into play when somebody's going to see your idea in the U.S. 
They're going to, in a foreign manufacturing base, they're going to make it, and then they're going to turn around and sell it foreign. Okay, it's being made foreign, it's being sold foreign, U.S. patent will not protect that. If it's being made foreign and sold in the U.S., protected. If it's being made in the U.S. and sold foreign, protected. But if the U.S. isn't involved in either the manufacture or the end sale uh, of, the, of the item, uh, your U.S. patent will not work, and then you want to start thinking about uh, foreign patenting. Uh, going into individual countries is relatively expensive. It involves often translations and larger uh, uh, filing fees, and you're using foreign counsel. Um, so it gets very expensive very fast. One way to delay that cost, uh, the, the largest amount of that cost, I should say, uh, and let your product prove itself before you incur this investment, is to use the PCT. That allows you up to 30 months after the U.S. filing to determine if this is worth going forward with, uh, worth going forward with the idea um, before you start paying these individual country filing fees, translation fees, and prosecution fees. Uh, I strongly recommend, unless you absolutely know that, for instance, a German patent is critical, uh, I usually strongly recommend using the PCT by yourself that time. Because you filed in the U.S., that U.S. filing date becomes your filing date for all these countries as long as you file within the PCT within a year. Uh, again, there'll be another one of these presentations directed to foreign filing. So summing up here uh, with some takeaways, uh, think patents, you know, in terms of what to patent, anything that would be devastating if the competition was able to copy it or worse, get a patent on it or stop you from doing it uh, or uh, make your idea um, worthless or of lesser value. Uh, whenever you realize you're, you're solving an unanticipated problem or creating a new workaround, think patents. Whenever you're fixing a bug or responding to a customer feedback, take a look at it and see if it's patentable because everybody's going to face that same issue. Everybody's going to get that same feedback. Uh, you need to keep track of your public disclosures, public uses, or offers for sale, keeping in mind that there's a one-year grace period in the U.S. and in many places, including Europe and Asia, you'll lose your rights immediately. Um, another thing to keep in mind, and I'll be discussing this in my next presentation, is that uh, it can take three to five years from when you file a patent application to when you actually get the issued patent. So you also want to act early to get those solidified rights as quickly as possible. And then in terms of where to file, if the U.S. is your market or your U.S. is your manufacturing base, U.S. is probably your best deal and the best place to file. And then if foreign is deemed necessary, use the PCT to delay those costs. Okay, hopefully that was helpful. Uh, thank you for listening and have a great day.